Amen, amen. Well, uh, thank you for that kind introduction. I, I will say that uh, Tom uh, was very influential in uh, bringing uh, my wife and I, and I here to sojourn. Um, and so I, I say that just in case this sermon is really bad, you'll know who to thank for that. Thank you. All right. Okay. All right, well, it's an honor to uh, speak to you uh, this morning, and uh, this is my first opportunity to, to speak at uh, Sojourn. I, I want to tell you, I've been really blessed through this passage uh, that we're going to be looking at here in Hebrews. And, um, you know, this whole series, uh, whether it's uh, Justin or Edward or, or one of the other uh, leaders in the congregation preaching, we're getting a lot of great meat from Hebrews. But I can assure you that that's probably only about 50% or or a fraction of what's actually in there. I would encourage you all to, as, as we're going through this, this study of Jesus is better in Hebrews, that, that you maybe go out and get a commentary, read through, uh, as you're studying God's word, uh, because there's just so much in there and we can't pack it in all of these sermons. Well, we can try. I mean, they have given me 45 minutes, right? So I can try to pack it all in. No, I actually won't, but, um, but again, as, uh, as we're speaking uh, from God's Word this morning, if you do not have a Bible with you, uh, you can raise your hand, and we have a copy that we can provide. Have you already done that? No? All right. And uh, if you don't own a copy of the Bible at home, you can obviously keep this. It's our gift to you. So we're looking this morning at uh, Hebrews 6, 13 through 20. We're picking up where Justin left off last week. And uh, I think I've titled this message, A Perfect Promise Keeper. I hope that's what uh, made it into bulletin. We're talking about God's promises. And that's very important for us to do because the reality is we live in a world where promises have come to mean very little, haven't they? Promises are made and broken with such regularity that it's come to be expected. In fact, uh, we've actually become pretty good at making excuses for why it's okay that we've broken a promise made to somebody or why it's not a big deal if someone breaks a promise made to us. And, uh, and we, we expect that. So think about a couple examples here. Think of your favorite coach who signed that lucrative contract extension to stay in the, stay in the city that he swore he wanted to stay in for the rest of his life and then next year left for a more lucrative contract to your rival. I'm still not holding grudges against Brian Kelly, but anyway. Marriage. Think about marriage. Despite seeing a decrease in divorce rates nationwide, which is good news, still marriages only have about a 50% chance of surviving. And that's one of the biggest promises we make to another person. And let's not get started on politics, right? Because, I mean, that's all about making promises. But a 2014 Rasmussen poll indicated that only 4% of Americans believe that politicians will keep their campaign promises. 4%. I mean, that's what we've come to expect and maybe even tolerate. So breaking promises has become status quo. A A noted humorist once compared promises to babies. They're both easy to make and hard to deliver. So should this worry us? Should, should it worry us, this, this, this state that we're in, where, where promises are being broken so frivolously? Well, according to a leading psychologist writing recently for Psychology Today, no, it shouldn't, us. It shouldn't worry us, because as long as we try as best we can, as long as we make a concerted effort to keep our promises, that's all that matters. 
In fact, this psychologist goes on to say, you know, it's, it's actually even a good thing to break promises from time to time. So according to modern psychology, we shouldn't feel so bad about the way things are. But if you do feel a little bad and you're concerned about this, don't worry. Science is coming to the rescue. I love this news story. So scientists at the University of Zurich have been running tests and conducting studies to refine MRI scanning technology to be, able, to be able to tell us if a person intends to keep a promise. Imagine that, a brain scan that allows us to predict those who are making false promises before they break their word. Think of the applications of this, right? At a presidential debate, you know, who cares about uh, approval ratings? We just hook all the candidates up to an MRI scan, find out what their promise-keeping rating is. Or let's say you're going to apply for a student loan, the financial institution. They can scan you. Sorry, young man. Looks like you're going to college just to party. We know the truth. And how about when you're getting married at the front of the altar? You can just come down, get hooked up to the... Well, maybe that would be a romance killer. Um, Maybe some things really ought to be left a mystery. But this is the world we live in. And if we're being completely honest, we've... We've broken a lot of promises ourselves that we've made to others. And we've been hurt by others who have broken promises made to us. And whether those were small or seemingly insignificant promises or ones that really cut us deeply, the cumulative effect is an erosion of our ability to trust others. And I fear an erosion of our ability to trust God as the perfect promise keeper. And so that is what I want to focus on this morning. He's the only one that we can trust. There's no scans required with God. He will never break his word. And so my goal this morning is simple. It's to get beyond the mere intellectual assent that we already have. We already know that God is perfect and that he always keeps his promise, but we want to go deeper, right? We don't want it just to be head knowledge. We want it to be heart knowledge. We want it to be to the point where each of us has absolute confidence that God never breaks his word. And I believe that if we can get to that point, it will radically change our walk with God. So let's look at Hebrews 6. I want to start in verse 13 and follow along with me as I read. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Lord Jesus, open our hearts. Open our minds to receive your word that we may hear you speak, not me, but you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, if we're going to fully understand what the author of Hebrews is trying to communicate to us this morning, we need to refresh our minds a little bit about who he's writing to. Now, these are young Jewish converts to the faith. That's why it's called the Epistle to the Hebrews. And they're experiencing pressure and persecution for their faith in Christ. Hebrews is a late letter in the New Testament. It's one of the last written around A.D. 67. Nero is in the thick of martyring Christians in Rome. Both Peter and Paul have likely already been put to death. The church has lost two of its greatest leaders. Add to that that these believers are being pressured by the Jewish community that they grew up in, and they are being branded as apostates. You have the Judaizers insisting that they need to remain obedient to Old Testament laws and rituals in addition to believing in Christ. And on top of it all, Jesus hadn't returned yet. You see, when he left, he promised to return. And they were expecting that to happen soon. And I, and I think it's hard for us to grasp how hopeless they were beginning to feel as Christians. Is he not coming back? Has he changed his mind about us? Do we need to seek out another way of salvation? And so it's in this environment that they needed to be reassured that God never breaks his promises. And more importantly, as we will see as we go through this, that God can never break his promises. His word is final. And so to make that point, our author begins by holding up Abraham as an example of someone who, as verse 12 says, through faith and patience inherited the promises. So this is our first point this morning. Just as Abraham showed patient faith in the promise of God, we too need to hold fast to God's promises. In verse 11 and 12 from last week's sermon are a good transition For this week, they tell us to be imitators, in verse 12, of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So back when I was in college and uh, Michael Jordan was playing basketball, making my life as a Knicks fan miserable. And by the way, Jordan has been retired for nearly 15 years, and my life's still miserable as a Knicks fan. But anyway, that's not the point. But back, back in those days, the big catchphrase was, be like Mike. And I think there were these this uh, commercial campaign, be like Mike, be like Mike. We were hearing it all the time. But in like fashion, what we have here is the author of Hebrews saying, be like Abraham, be an imitator of this guy. He led the way, or be like Abe is what we would say, right? And And he's pointing back to Genesis chapter 22 and specifically to the great test of faith that Abraham experienced there. Uh, You remember the story of Abraham, right? God had initially promised Abraham a son back in Genesis 15 when he told him that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars, that he would make a great nation out of him. But Abraham and his wife were childless. They were both advanced in years. His wife Sarah was thought to be barren. She even laughed at the idea that she would become pregnant at her age. He was 75 years old at the time of the promise. Fifteen years went by, still no child. God reiterated the promise again. He turns 100, still no child. Then miracle of miracles, 
they finally have a son, one son, Isaac. Abraham had his heir to the promise through his wife, Sarah. And when his son was older, that's when God asked for the unthinkable. Abraham is asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now, Genesis 22 is a very challenging passage of Scripture. And while that passage is not the focus of today's message, I want you to understand a couple of things. First, God did not have Abraham sacrifice Isaac. And God would not have had him follow through with that. And that's an important distinction for us. But secondly, I, I believe if you go back and read Genesis chapter 2 and wade through that passage, I think you'll find that Abraham did not expect to lose his son. He believed God's promise and he believed that God would work a miracle. He even says to his son, God will provide the lamb for the offering. But what is God doing in this passage? Well, he's, he's, he's uh, testing Abraham's faith in the promise that he gave him. See, along the way, Abraham, you know, he made some mistakes. He showed he had some doubts at times. He was human. You may remember Hagar. But in his darkest moment, when his faith was tested in the most trying of ways, when the prospect of losing that promise completely was before him, he demonstrated unwavering confidence in the promise of God. Now, I want you to think about the Hebrew Christians that our author is writing to. See, because likewise, they were being tested severely. It was a dark period for them. See, many people actually believe that this epistle was written to the Hebrew believers in Rome. And if that is true, they would have seen their loved ones, their children, their parents, their brothers and sisters, their friends strapped to poles and set on fire. For believing in Christ. They knew suffering. And they were struggling. You see we all go through difficult times. When it's hard to trust in God. And believe in his promises. And you know as difficult as Genesis chapter 22 is. I believe that it stands as a testimony. That the greatest time of your testing. In your greatest time of need. He will never abandon you. He will never break his promise to you. And that's what the author is telling these believers. I know you're having doubts. I know you're struggling to believe. I know you're suffering. But have faith. Be patient. Be like Abraham. And this passage is telling us the same thing. You see, because there may be times when you feel pushed to your limits. Maybe watching your own child or loved ones suffer from an illness or some other difficult challenge. Maybe it's a financial crisis that you're going through. Or maybe you're feeling pressure at work or at school to not be too Christian, to not stand up. And you have pressure from all sides to compromise, to renounce God, to abandon your faith. But we have this scripture saying, be patient, keep trusting God will not abandon you. Do not abandon him. I love the way J.B. Phillips translates verse 15 in his New Testament in modern English. He says, And then Abraham, after patient endurance, found the promise true. 
Amen? See, be like Abraham. Be like Abraham. Now next, our author moves on in his argument to uh, stress the, uh, the confidence we can have in God's promises by pointing to the unchangeable nature of God. And this is our second point this morning. We can have complete confidence in God's promises because they are grounded in His unchanging nature. And here we're focusing on verses 16 through 18. And you know, the one thing that really stands out to me as I was working through this passage is how the author has worded things. Man, there's so much in this. Uh, Cultural illusions, grammatical structure, uh, some philosophy in there. And I really get geeked out over this stuff. So I'm going to try to restrain myself this morning. Um, But what the author is trying to do is he's trying to express as strongly as possible the unchanging faithfulness of God. That's why I, too, I love that quote from Luther from uh, last week that Justin shared about pounding the gospel into our heads. Because earlier this week, I was, I was reading through the section. I had written down that this section reads, it comes across as if the author is saying, hey, get this into your thick heads. God doesn't break his promises. If he said he will do it, he will do it. Verse 17, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his promise or his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. And this is the perfect summary of this passage. I love that little phrase, desiring to show more convincingly. You know, when I was looking at it in the original language, it's expressing more than just desire or an inclination on God's part. It's expressing definitive resolve. This is what God wants for us. And the word desiring implies that God's resolve is directed towards the future. So it's a future tense here. So what that means is not only is he trying to stress this point to Abraham or to the the Hebrew, uh, Hebrew believers in Rome, but he's stressing this to the heirs of the promise. And we are heirs of that promise. As Paul says in Romans 4, God wants us clearly and emphatically to know with absolute certainty that his promises are inviolable. And that's just a fancy way of saying his promises cannot be violated. They cannot be retracted. In ancient times, if you were going to swear an oath, you needed two witnesses. Now, certainly God is not held to that legal requirement. His word alone is enough. And as the author says in verse 13, there, there is no one greater than God. He is perfect. He can't swear by anybody else. But the fact that God swears an oath by himself indicates, indicates that he is bound by his eternal nature. You see, the confidence we can have in God's promises is rooted in his unchangeable nature. They are absolute and irrevocable because God is absolute. And once he gives a promise, it cannot be taken back. Psalm 110 verse 4 says very clearly, The Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. And now we have here in verse 17 and again in verse 18, we have that word unchangeable in our text. And, and, and this is neat because, you know, that word, this is the only two times it appears in the entire New Testament is in this passage. I mean, this, this author is trying to stress it. it And, you know, some translations will have the word immutable or immutability. Now, now that's a word you don't hear every day. 
immutable. Not too many worship songs that use that word. But it's a big word in theology, right? And quite frankly, it's often misunderstood by Christians. In fact, the word sounds a bit off-putting, doesn't it? God is immutable. What does that mean? That he's muted, that he's silent, that he doesn't speak, that he's distant, uninvolved? No, it simply means, as it's translated here, that, that he never changes. And trust me, that's a great thing to know about God. That's a great thing to be certain of, that God never changes. The immutability of God ought to be one of our favorite attributes of God. There ought to be more songs about the immutability of God. Let's write some, okay? So, work on it. All right. But the root word here that's used to construct this word for unchangeable is sometimes translated as turncoat in other uh, Greek uh, works. So what you actually have is the author saying, God's not a turncoat. He's not going to some future date you know, decide to change his mind and, or, or think about his promises and say, yeah, you know, maybe I was a little hasty back then. Things have changed. I'm going to pull him back. He's not going to do that. Think about Romans 8.1. All right, that's a great promise. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm going I'm to make a confession to you. That when I sin, and it happens from time to time, trust me, okay, Tom knows this for sure, uh, many times, to be honest, many times I feel a great deal of condemnation. I do. You know, especially when it's, it's one of those ones I'm struggling with over and over again, and I think, man, how many years have I been a Christian? And that thing crops up from time to time. How can I not be condemned? I'm ready to condemn myself. How can God still love me when I continue to fail Him? And He knows me better than anybody else, right? So you know, in my crazy thought process, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, God's leaning back and saying, oh boy. You know, I had some high hopes for that, Mike Dewey. But now I'm not so sure. He's blown it one too many times. And that promise of eternal life, maybe, you know, maybe I'm going to have to pull that back. That is something that we should never have to worry about as Christians. God is not a turncoat. He doesn't change his mind. He will never stop loving you. When we look at verse 18, he says, So that by two unchangeable things, he's talking about his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. I like that phrase, might have strong encouragement. You hear something like that, you think, boy, there's something there, right? So, so it, it, it's actually written in a tense that communicates a state that we are to perpetually have. We are to keep having strong encouragement. And these are words that at that period of time were most commonly used in culture referring to armies and fortresses that were positioned to stand against an enemy or an adversary. So the imagery, the imagery would have been very clear to the Hebrew Christians. Knowing that God is immutable, is like constructing a mental fortress around our thoughts so that when those doubts rise up 
when we hear that little voice telling us that maybe God doesn't love you anymore, we can immediately shut it down. We can shut it down. Because it goes against His promise for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, in our strength, comes from knowing that it is impossible for God to lie. It doesn't depend upon the stability or strength of our own faith. It is based upon His unchanging nature. St. Anselm is considered by many one of the greatest Christian philosophers and apologists of his time. Uh, He is sometimes referred to as the second Augustine. He was born in 1033 in northern Italy, He spent the last few years of his life as the Archbishop of Canterbury, but he's best known for developing something that has come to be known as the ontological argument for the existence of God. Don't worry, I'm not going to go into that this morning. Uh, But you may have uh, heard uh, the famous line from that argument. God is that than which nothing greater can possibly be conceived. To this day, uh, philosophers debate and write about this argument, and most would uh, agree that it's it's not really effective in proving God's existence. However, as a tool or theological device for better understanding God, it's amazing. You know, the interesting thing about Anselm, a lot of people don't realize, I mean, he's this great philosopher, but he actually developed this argument as he was worshiping God, when you go back and read it, he's praying and he's contemplating the majesty and the nature of God and outspills this complex philosophical argument. What he actually ends up providing us with is not so much a proof of God's existence, but I think one of the best definitions of who God is. And you can actually see that definition communicated in this passage. See, Anselm's definition of a God says, God is that than which nothing greater can possibly be conceived. Verse 13, he says, there's no one greater than God. He's saying there's no person or being greater than God. He is perfect. Or as a Christian philosopher extraordinaire Alvin Plantinga would say, he is a maximally perfect being. So if I was to temporarily hijack the title for this sermon series, Jesus is Better. And since Justin's not here, okay, we we can do this, right? Just between us, right? We won't tell him. But if I was to hijack it temporarily, I would change it to say that Jesus, as God incarnate, is not simply better than anything or anyone else. He is maximally better. Jesus is maximally better. He's He's better to the extreme, to the nth degree. He is that than which nothing better or greater can possibly be conceived. And having that as our conception of who God is should change how we read this passage. Think of someone you may know or who have heard of who has a uh, a pretty good, who does a pretty good job of keeping their promises. You know, they have a great, track record. We say that that he's a man or she's a a woman of her word. God is not simply better than that person. He's maximally better. There is no example that we can truly point to for someone as perfect as God who always keeps his word. He's not simply better than average. He's the best. He has a perfect track record. 
And he'll continue to be perfect when it comes to keeping his promises because he's a maximally perfect being. And that makes dishonesty and fickleness and a tendency to change one's mind, going back on one's word. These are absolute impossibilities with God, church. I know we see it so much in this world it's easy to transfer it onto God. But he is mapped maximally great he can no more break a promise than he can go against his nature and so i believe thinking of god in these terms looking at the point that the author of hebrews is trying to stress in this passage how is it that we ever doubt a single promise of god How is it that we can profess with our mouths that we believe He's a perfect promise keeper and yet not live like we actually believe it? It goes back to what Justin touched on last week. It's one thing to have the head knowledge, quite another to truly believe it and to act upon it. So what would it look like? What do you think it would look like if we truly believed God's promises? I mean, if we lived like we believed it. I mentioned J.B. Phillips earlier in his introduction to his translation to the book of Acts. He asked this question. He said, what's the great difference between the church in Acts and the church today? Why were they seeing so many people come to Christ? Why were they seeing so many miracles performed? Why were they seeing society uh, transformed in such dramatic ways when today we're not seeing that? He answered his own question by saying that they believed the promises of God. They believed it was real. That God was going to follow through on what he said. They lived like those promises were the truth. And then he said, and I love this quote. I want us to hear this. Perhaps if we believed what they believed, we could achieve what they achieved. Perhaps if we believed what they believed, we could achieve what they achieved. I want to close out this morning looking at the culmination of this passage. Our author has uh, pointed to the example of Abraham to demonstrate how uh, he had absolute confidence in God's promises to him. He's pointed to the unchanging nature of God to demonstrate how it is an impossibility for God to break His Word. And finally, now, He points to Christ to demonstrate how God will not break His greatest promise to us, that is our salvation. And this is our third point this morning. We can have assurance of our salvation because it is a promise rooted in the unchanging nature of God and it's secured by the work of Christ. Last week, we looked at the first half of chapter 6. While, while some look at that first part of the chapter as speaking about the possibility of Christians and believers losing their salvation, Justin advanced the interpretation that the author of Hebrews was actually talking about folks within the Christian community, those that had heard the Word of God preached, those that knew why Christ came to this earth, those that very much acted like they were Christians, but had never truly experienced saving grace. And if you had any doubts, I know it's a controversial passage, but if you had any doubts 
about what Justin discussed last week, the second part of this chapter should smash those doubts. Verses 13 through 20, they're like the exclamation point to his overall argument. And these last two verses are simply applying what we know about God as the perfect promise keeper to the greatest promise we have as Christians. Verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, I want to save a, a full exploration of the topic of Melchizedek and the veil in the temple that separated off the Holy of Holies for, for other messages. The, you know, the next few chapters in Hebrew flesh these out in great detail, so you're going to hear some great messages on that in the coming weeks. But instead, I want to focus on what is perhaps one of the most enduring and beautiful images in Christian history. It's what we... Uh, Sang about in the hymn before, uh, before I got up here. The anchor. This metaphor of the anchor is nowhere else used in the New Testament. And yet, it went on to become a symbol used by early Christians. The image of the anchor was found 66 times in the catacombs under Rome, carved into the walls. And remember, most scholars think that this epistle was written to the Hebrew believers in Rome. So the fact that archaeological evidence has shown the image of the anchor is so prevalent in the Roman church, that tells us that when they heard this passage, it had an impact. This is nowhere else mentioned. They understood what the anchor so let's think about that for a second. You know, an anchor is designed to help a boat remain fixed. It's an iron hook designed to grapple rocks on the floor of the sea. It can prevent a boat from drifting or from ultimately shipwrecking. The waves come, the storm howls, and yet, in theory, the boat remains steadfast. But what is our anchor? I love how clear the ESV is here in verse 19. It says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor. We have this. The this refers back to the previous verse. That is talking about the hope set before us. We have that as an anchor, sure and steadfast. The hope before us is that we will follow where Christ has already gone. That that is a certain promise of eternal life and it's acting as an anchor to our soul when the storms and the trials come in our life when christ died on the cross paying for our sins his work of salvation was complete and he ascended to sit at the right hand of god but our author goes on to tell us that he is our forerunner Again, I, I love this word. I mean, it's the only time in all of Scripture that that word is used. So it's important for us to understand what it means. Forerunner presupposes that others will follow. Jesus is our forerunner. He's leading the way, and His entrance guarantees that we will join Him. So if these believers were truly doubting that promise, 
that he had gone to prepare a place for them, that he would return for them. Our author is trying to drive those doubts away. Our eternal reward in heaven is sure because it's a promise. And God does not break his promises. Our salvation is secure not simply because of the work of Christ on the cross, but because he has entered beyond the curtain and he has anchored it at the very throne of God. So this entire chapter comes full circle, right? You who truly believe, God will not let you fall away. He will preserve you. You are his. He will fight for you. And he has given you his word. His love for you will never be revoked. His promise of an eternal reward in heaven can never be broken. And not only is that promise certain, but all of God's promises are equally guaranteed. And so if we're to avoid shipwreck in our walks with God, if we're to become the kind of church that truly transforms this world, we must cling to every promise and stand upon every promise. And here's how we can do that, church. We can do that by putting those promises ever before us. We can surround ourselves with God's promise. You know, as you're reading Scripture on a daily basis, underline, highlight the promises. Draw circles around them. Write them in your CBR journals. Write them on a 3 by 5 card or a post-it note. Stick them on your mirror so when you're brushing your teeth in the morning and you're combing your hair, you see that promise and you remember. Put it on the dash of your car so when you're in your car in the morning making that long commute in Northern Virginia, you can see it. Put it in your pocket so that you can pull it out at various times in the day and read it and remember the promise. Meditate on it. Memorize it. And I assure you that when you face the storms, God will bring it to your remembrance. He will remind you and it will be an anchor for your soul. There's a great quote from Warren Wearsby in his commentary on this passage. He says, The difference between our anchor and the world's, ours is upwards, not downwards. We are anchored not to stand still, but to move ahead. Ours cannot slip or break, while the world's most certainly will in a severe storm. I want to conclude this morning by simply reading a few of the promises of God. I want to just read them. And while you're sitting there and you're hearing these words, I want you to allow them to penetrate. I know you've heard them before, but just allow them to penetrate your heart. And ask God, Lord, help me. Help me to truly believe your word. Philippians 1.6 For I am confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Hebrews 13.5 I will never desert you nor will I ever forsake you. Psalm 23.4 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Romans 8.28 And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Romans 8.38 and 39 For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. 2 Timothy 1.7 For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-control. Isaiah 40, 31. Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like the eagle. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 1 John 5, 11 through 13. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Matthew 28, 20. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. It's fitting that now we come to our time of communion this morning. And if uh, you're here and you're listening to these promises and you're listening, listening about the work of Christ and you have come to the realization that you've never truly trusted Him, You've never truly come to know Him as your Savior. Then we want you to use this time to ask God to speak to you. We ask that you remain seated. Reflect on the promises that we've read. Reflect on Christ's death on the cross. Remember, He gave His life as a sacrifice for our sins. He took our place and He shed His blood for us. And this is the perfect time to call out to Him and receive mercy and grace. And after the service, if you've made a decision to trust Christ for the first time this morning, after the service, you know, as Daniel was saying, grab one of us, grab Tom, grab somebody next to you and say, I need to know more about Jesus. That's what we're here for. For those who have already made that commitment, this is the time to come. Communion is an opportunity for us to look back, to remember what Christ has already done for us, that He's secured for us, but it is also a time to look forward, 
to proclaim that he is our forerunner, that we will follow him, that we will, that he will come again for his church. So I'm going to pray, and then when I'm done, come in confidence, proclaiming him as Savior and Lord. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the abundant promises which you have given to us. We thank you for your work on the cross that you shed your blood for us. And we thank you for the salvation that you have promised for all who trust in you. God, help us to believe it. Help us to trust it, to stand upon it, to proclaim it. And as we come now to this time of communion, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are our forerunner. You have gone before us. And we look forward to the day that you will come to bring us to be with you there. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.